Hi, this is Martin Fowler, and you're listening to the Agile Uprising. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Agile Uprising podcast. I am your host, Troy Lifewood. And with me, I have a very special guest. Um, his name is Dave, Dave Rush, someone I've had I've recently had the pleasure of working with, uh, learning from, and still learning from to this day. So I figure why not bring a person like that uh, to you all to listen to. Um, so the audience knows me for the most part. So Dave, why don't you introduce yourself? Oh, thanks, Troy. Um, and thanks for the invite to spend a bit more time with you. I also had, had the pleasure of just working with you as well. So the feeling's mutual in terms of learning from each other. So, yeah, my name's Dave Rush. Um, uh, I come from the – I'm born in England, first of all. So uh, I grew up in England, and uh, my early part of my career in automotive was in England. So I'm an engineer by trade was lucky enough to get a scholarship and Ford Motor Company put me through uh, university and their trade school program back in the early 70s. And then um, I've spent most of my life in automotive across the spectrum in terms of engineering, manufacturing, and pretty much everything around automotive, um, mostly engineering though. So I've spent a lot of my time in and around product development and I'm lucky enough to have been in pretty much all parts of the globe automotively, South Africa, Australia, spent most of my life here in North America. And with that, um, spent a lot of my time at Ford Motor Company um, here in North America. And with that, uh, in and around engineering, uh, a large part of my career has been about the process of product development is where I've gravitated from in the early days i was a lean guy mm -hmm. um here especially here in north america um learning lean manufacturing and then that progressed into um lean product development and lucky enough to spend a lot of time on the process improvements at, at ford um back in the 90s and the 2000s so spent some time we brought people like Dr. Deming in, so we got to spend a lot of time working under the the tutelage of Dr. Deming and all the fun times around the work he did with Ford and the seminars, um, you know, before Out of the Crisis uh, book and things like that. So that was a lot of fun and a lot of education. Um, Peter Senge uh, in and around organisational learning, right, and you know, the human side and uh, systems thinking, so the fifth discipline kind of aspects of it. And probably in the last uh, 15, 20 years, uh, fast forward, I've sort of been wrapped up in from lean in product development, moving into the agile and trying to learn agile, first of all, at the team level um, for a tier one supplier um, and uh, doing kind of, team level agility and then how do you take that into scale and a lot of my focus has been around blending all these 
tools or approaches together. So gone through the spectrum of the frameworks and then um, really just tried to focus on is it improving the way we work, the flow. I've always been a flow guy. Mm -hmm. So um, obviously if you come from a lean background, flow is it's it, it's the core, whether it's, you know, materials flow uh, to make physical products or whether it's information flow to produce software, services, whatever. So I'm very much a flow guy. Um, So that's kind of um, my my life story there in a a few minutes. Um, (laughs) But a love for learning and a love for um, product development and best practice methods, ways to do things better. Right. And um, for the audience, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to bring Dave on, obviously, because he has a lot of experience um, that I thought we could all learn from. Um, but he has a, um, a bit of a specialty when it comes to how to do product development across hardware, software, firmware um, in a lean and agile way. And that's what he focuses on. And and um, and to me, that's very interesting, right? Because it's one thing to do lean and agile ways of working for software only, right? Um, but what do you do when you have hardware involved, right? It becomes much more complex. So, and that's one of, uh, Dave's specialties. So I wanted to bring him on and and talk about that today. So thank you, Dave, for the intro. Um, I wanted to kick it off because you worked, uh, at Ford, um, for, it seems like many years. Uh, I thought we could start with a story about Henry Ford. Uh, and it's a little bit of a parable, I guess, or a tale about uh, with with an analogy of what goes on today, right? So um, long time ago, right? <laughs> uh, uh, Ford was known as um, one of the most, if not kind of the innovator in the space of um, of uh, creating, creating automobiles. And he created processes uh, for that. And he was kind of one of the main sponsors and implementers of the assembly line system. And he also created some other ways of working, which have caught on over the years. In fact, it was called welfare capitalism. Uh, and essentially what he did was he paid his workers about twice, twice the amount of money as other companies were paying them. He implemented a 40-hour work week. He implemented savings and loans programs. He built cafeterias. Uh, he built social welfare, welfare departments for the workers, even implemented profit sharing, right? So he was really forward thinking with a lot of this type of... Um, kind of employee benefits, right? And thinking about sustainability and trying to make thing, trying to make the employees happy, right? Employee satisfaction. Um, so that sounds great, right? Um, but there's a story. And if you want to read more about the story, I would encourage you to read a book. Um, we actually did a podcast about this book previously, but called Scaling Simplified by, by a friend of mine named Pratik Singh. Anyway, in that book, he talks about this story, and I'm just summarizing it. The gist of the story is that basically Henry Ford tried to implement his same processes and ways of working in uh, the uh, in Brazil, in the rainforest in Brazil, uh, and he needed that for uh, rubber production. And so basically, he tried to recreate everything exactly that worked for him in his Ford company uh, in the U.S. in Brazil. Uh, down to the cafeterias, down to everything, the 40-hour work week, the manufacturing uh, process, everything. And it turned out, long story short, that people hated it so much that they literally revolted that they had to bring in the the military, actually, <laughs> uh, in Brazil to, uh, to kind of calm what was happening, right? And he even tried again, and he tried to, tried to create housing for people and tried to create like... Um, 
what would what is life like here in the U.S. Right, a, a suburban U.S. And he tried to recreate the exact same thing. Is that people are going to love it? And in fact, they hated it. Right. Uh, so the moral is that story is that even someone as brilliant as Henry Ford was, right, and that had a proven way of working in one area and one type of context and culture, tried to implement that so same processes in another area of the world or another culture, and it failed miserably. So my question to you, Dave, is what can we? What does that story parallel? What can we learn from that from that uh, piece of history? Well, I guess the one that first comes to mind is uh, kind of one of the agile manifestos, right? People over process, I guess. Right. Right. You know? <laughs> right. right. Um, yeah, I'm a big process guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm I'm quite prescriptive in certain areas, and I think there's this balance between. I'm a big process guy, and I'm a big standards guy. So I think that. Standardizing on things, especially with large numbers of people and large groups of people, large numbers of teams, I think a degree of standards is almost a necessity, right? Mm-hmm. But understanding things like the culture and the basic needs, um, especially as you look at different uh regions of the world etc so you can imagine them back in those early years um i would imagine that was sort of in and around sort of the early part of the last century right you know mm-hmm. uh, you can imagine them going there and thinking oh we just put this in place but right. you know i i've spent my time um in places like South Africa and Australia and Barcelona, you know, I've worked in a lot in, in Germany, right. Mm. Uh, and the likes and everywhere you go, Sweden, right. Uh, and all, everyone's got their kind of their back part of their nationality and their culture and they're just, you know, certain aspects and they're all different. Right, yeah. uh, their priorities are different. Uh, the things that drive their culture are different. So you can't just go and plonk a, a, a process standard and a standard way of working and expect it to just work the same as it does somewhere else. Right. So you, you have to really understand what's this situation, the as is of the way things are, and what are you really trying to produce as an outcome, and then. What are the kind of the things that you potentially can make like standard mm-hmm. and then the things that have to be unique and special to that particular situation, that particular activity, that particular culture or region, right? right. And they all count, right? So yeah. I think knowing people, it gets down to people and um, organizations and societies. I think that's a really big part of it. Um, you really do have to understand what motivates people and what what their basic needs are, and you know what sort of drives them. What what what? Where you have to empathize with that kind of um, with who you're dealing with. And I think that's an important part of um, being a kind of a process improvement type uh, person, whether it's a coach or whatever you way you frame it uh, right. I think is a big part of the part of the the necessity of making things better yeah thanks Dave for that I totally agree and um 
kind of, I'm going to pivot or uh, this is a kind of a segue into the next topic, really. But if you think about that example, the kind of the, the fallacy there is that one specific framework or way of working is you can just take it and implement it exactly as is and expect the same results, as you mentioned, right? Uh, because every context is different. And speaking of context, right, the context for developing software only is, is probably uh, not the same as the context for when you're doing pro uh, complex product delivery with hardware, for example, developing automobiles, right? Uh, there's different challenges. And so sure. what is different and thinking about when people think about scaled agile or scaling agile and lean and those types of things, you know, they might think of either scaled agile framework or um, large scale scrum, for example, right? Or Spotify or those types of things come to people's mind. But fair enough, you sure. know, those are yeah. the frameworks. But when we get to scaling to hardware and firmware and um, going to a, pro a complex product delivery, what do we need to rethink? What's different? Yeah, yeah, no, I, that's a great um, question. Um, so I'll, I'll talk from my own experiences. Um, I I was lucky enough to uh, work in an area of automotive. It was actually infotainment systems, um, very complex single device. You know, imagine, think of it as your radio or your tuner or the modern infotainment system right. in your in your vehicle. So I, I, I worked for a supplier of those um and um you know one unit one part really that goes into the vehicle many parts within the part right but mm -hmm. you know one part it got a couple of million lines of code on it right mm -hmm. so in the early days we'd have uh, a situation where that one system for one new vehicle model would have 20 systems engineers would have maybe seven or eight electronics engineers, um, some hardware, you know, the, the mechanics of the, the frame and everything, the mechanical engineers, and, you know, two to 400 software engineers, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so order of magnitude. So the first thing, they all wanted to use Scrum um, uh, as a way of working. And I first, in the early years, I'd say, what is Scrum, right? So I had to right. go and look what scrum was all about and i put everyone i was lucky enough to get some can i tell pull some names up here uh, yeah if you, it's up so, to you whatever you want so yeah I, I reached out to uh to um some of the the, the people in uh that were doing the early scrum uh so um and i was i was put on eventually to Ken Rubin. Uh, if you if you know Ken, he wrote uh, Essential Scrum, and um, he uh, you know amazing book that is. And and I, and I was put on to him, uh, and I ended up uh, bringing him in to train all our teams. Right, so Ken ended up coming in from uh, the West Coast. I think he was in. I uh, can't remember down Phoenix or somewhere out there. Right. Brought him over to Atlanta area and um, and plowed all the guys through the Scrum classes and everything. So we learned Scrum, and then immediately we started applying it. Mm -hmm. And I needed to start. Well, how do I do this? Uh, you know, take this Scrum and deal. I got three hundred people in a one program. You know, right. and so we had to start working on that. So I was. Fishing around, and at the time, Dean uh, Leffenwell had his early book on agile requirements. So Safe wasn't there yet, um, and so we, you know, 
was started pinging out and reaching out. And I think Dean was up in his loft uh, with uh, a couple of guys uh, when they were working out the safe framework. And I started to follow kind of that and started to look at some of the other aspects that Ken had mentioned about mm, doing things at scale, you know, and we've sort of seen many frameworks come along, whether it's less or safe or Nexus or, you know, some of the others uh, and some of the derivatives, Spotify, et cetera. Uh, and the, what I would say in terms of scaling, first of all, is that they all get back to the principles. So you can use the principles, but you're highly unlikely to just out of the box apply the frameworks. The frameworks are frameworks, right? They're, you know, so, you know, don't get glued into certain language that they use in the framework. It doesn't matter, right? Mm. Get Get the essence of the idea. Then when you start sort of mixing it up and now you're dealing with the flow of software development and then developing those electronics and the hardware and, and the likes, you, you've got a total different set of constraint conditions. So ultimately in software today, we could release software to the final production area and then we could realize we might have made a mistake or we've got ways to improve it, prove it. And we can very quickly change that, those lines of code and then update it very quickly um, right. through over the wire, over the air and, and update it. With hardware, uh, it's got longer life cycles and they're expected longer life cycles. Things are just for tooling up the the, the parts uh, for the, you know, they've got to have a life where you get your money back off your tools, right? So mm. the general life of hardware in the phone industry, it might have one or two years between model years of a phone. Mm -hmm. Electronics and other things might have be on an annual cycle depending on how sophisticated they are. But the car, you know, brand new models of cars, we got sort of three years before the next model and the underlying tooling, um, it's got seven, eight years, maybe even 10 years of tooling, depending on where you're at. So mm. completely different economics around the process. And obviously, if you're making hardware, um, just to make prototypes of hardware, right, um, right. Just a, if you make a PCB board, for instance, mm. an electronics board, three months to 12 weeks to do a cycle turn of hardware. So just the general reality. And normally, if you talk about that in terms of iterations, uh, you might have to go through two, three iterations of, say, let's stick to the printed circuit boards mm. um, of PCBs to um, to get to the final production, right? Mm. Uh, and what, what's interesting in that space is even today, if you look at a warranty recall on a vehicle, right, mm -hmm. the number one warranty recall, if you go and look at, say, 2023 and the top 10 recalls all around electronics and really electronics and then the software on the electronics. Right, so right, right. it's kind of uh, you can't shortchange the fact that it needs time to build robust systems yeah. And you don't get second hits at it. It costs you money to go and fix things. Um, so it, it is a different uh, life cycle and a different um, um, turn. But 
it does mean that you can find ways to synchronize that development of that together. Because at the end of the day, the customer doesn't care about the actual underlying software. They don't care about the underlying electronics and mechanics. They they care about the end product and the features and the capabilities and the functionality. Right. So what's key is how do I drive the flow of new features, functions, capabilities, whilst recognizing the different constraints in mechanical systems, uh, electronic systems, and then software systems. So it, you have, that to me is, that's been my area of focus for oh, getting on 10 years now um, because of the complexity of that space. And you really have to understand what the constraints are in each space and what the needs are in each space. And if you think that you can take software ideas and just purely apply it to electronics and mechanics or mechanical or electronics ideas and find that they're suitable for software, you're going to be sadly mistaken. And I think that's, the for me, the lessons learned. It's find the synchronization and the harmonization to bring these methods together. What do you think is one big difference between scaling for pure software versus scaling when you start um, including hardware development and firmware development? Well, when we say scaling, first of all, mm -hmm. I think generally we're talking about bringing in under the umbrella more and more people. Right. So if you was to look at a vehicle development and all the suppliers under the manufacturer of the vehicle, um, you're probably talking seven, 10,000 people mm -hmm. involved in developing the vehicle. Right. right. And they come from all attributes, right? It's not just the systems and, and the parts themselves or the lines of code and the software the so the, itself, but you're, you're talking about all the different attributes, you know, uh, crashing the vehicle, the MVH, uh, uh, the, the noise and the vibration, the vehicle dynamics. So, and then whether it's a vehicle or any other complex products, they've all got similar kinds of physics-related challenges so I, th I think the 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 general difference is is the robustness that you have to go through to ensure the output of what you're trying to produce and mm -hmm. mechanical or electronic systems you've basically got to you know follow design standards to a certain degree things you've learned from the, the past mm -hmm. and then I think in, in scaling on software, you know, we've seen lots of things we've been able to do, use of libraries and reuse of code and and uh, and the likes, and that speeds things up. But in general, it's kind of the order of magnitude of people in the end, right? Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. If you've got millions and millions of lines of code, for instance, you've probably got lots and lots and lots of software teams. Mm -hmm. You get to the vehicle, so, you know, think million lines of code, 10 million lines of code. Just think about how many lines of code can you either write from scratch or you can review and modify. So mm -hmm. no matter what part of the equation you're on, whereas you go over to the car, you know, what are you you're talking about on the mechanical systems, electronic systems, you know, 26,000 parts, the, mm -hmm. the scale of difference Right. 26,000 parts, 
millions of lines of code. And you've got to be able to read all those millions of lines of code, block them together to make sure that they work the way you want to work. So the scaling of it, it's really a harmonization effort, right? Mm -hmm. Someone's harmonizing this 26,000 parts uh, and trying to get them to all sing together. And then someone's trying to take these million lines of code, target, you know, up to maybe a hundred devices on the on the end product, the, the vehicle, if I keep using that as the example, sure. and making sure they all work together with all those other parts of the systems, right? So it's kind of a different kind of scaling exercise. And then it becomes really a, a harmonization effort um, that you have to deal with. Does that make okay. sense? Yeah, no, it does. It does. I was wondering, um, I guess my last follow-up question about this one is, um, what do you think the difference in the constraint, um, in particular, uh, if, top of my head, um, when I first met you, actually, you were you were telling me about your inversion techniques, right? And because oh, one, yeah. of, those, one yeah. of the constraints in, in complex product development is often firmware. So yeah. um, so maybe maybe you could talk a little bit about that. The inversion thing, that's quite a, that came over many failures, really. Okay. All right. <laughs> Um, we were you. I was experimenting with some of the well-known frameworks. We know them, you know. The if you say, I was experimenting with the top two or three scaling frameworks, and mm -hmm. I was quite enamoured by them um, in in my you know when they were first out, right? And I was a big ambassador for them, and so we were experimenting with them. And as we were trying to apply it to the real world. Um, you know, from the framework perspective and then using it the way they they sort of lay it out in the learning and, and that, um, we, we were struggling to make it work in all our situations. So, like, the inversion uh, problem is if you could take lots of teams mm -hmm. and dedicate them, say, take 20 teams, it doesn't matter the number, mm -hmm. right, and group them together and plan together all as one group, right? Mm -hmm. Call it whatever you want, right? Um, and, and plan for that group, right? Um, if, it, if they were fully dedicated, it was, everything would be fine. You'll mm -hmm. go plan on a regular interval. The teams plan on some sprint-based basis, every week or two weeks, and then they come together every so many number of sprints, and then the bigger group plans together for another big cycle, and um, you develop and go through that bigger cycle and produce another increment of output, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's good. What we found was, though, organizationally, um, Lots of our experts, for instance, if you go to electronics and you think that all the number of programs you might have in a major automotive um, manufacturer and their tier one suppliers have exactly the same problem. Mm -hmm. Hundreds of programs all running in parallel. You just haven't got enough people to go around, specialist mm -hmm. people that can only do certain kinds of specialist stuff, right? right, right. So you might only have. 15, 20, or if it's a really big organization, 40, 50 electronic specialists on, on your groups. So mm -hmm. there's just not enough to go around. So you have to centralize them and they're working on all the programs, right? Yeah. Yep. So 
many teams, one program, sort of a classic framework kind of approach. Mm-hmm. Great, right? Out comes the singular output for the focused area, whatever you're focused on, the product, right? right. When you've got that going on, but you've also got to centralize many group, many together, we had to sort of, we were go, going down the route of plat- platforms and reusability, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we what we had to do was, in the same way as we had lots of teams planning together for one program, mm-hmm. we then had a situation where we've got one domain group, say all the electronics engineers or all the embedded software engineers um, with certain set of skills, and they were broken into sub-teams, we had them planning for many programs because mm-hmm. they've got to satisfy all the programs. So what's coming into their workload, their backlogs, is coming from many programs. So now you've got to put the jigsaw puzzle together of the plan for the next big long period, right, the next phase of sprints, increment of work, and you got to put all that together. And that's what we call the inversion. So if you think about it in terms of the list of work or your backlogs, right, Um, the classical view of many teams, one backlog for one program, for one product output. Mm -hmm. Um, Another view of it, which we call the inverted view, is one domain group with specialist skills working on all of the programs and mm-hmm. underneath that, all of the teams related to that domain. Right. And we had to glue that together. And we we did that through this inversion technique, which works quite effectively. But you can imagine in your planning tools and, you know, the communication, all of a sudden now your planning environment and your work management environment, your backlog environments have got super complicated in terms of being able to visualize where your loads are is the domain teams overloaded are your is your your dedicated teams overloaded what's the balance between dedicated teams and specialist teams and that, okay. that means where the black art is that you have to find the balance and i think that's a really big part of where you can actually get more success is if you start to study that in any right. organization. Yeah, thanks, Dave. That that makes a lot of sense. Um, thank you for sharing your experiences there. One thing, one another thing I learned from you actually, uh, while working with you over the last year, uh, is all about um, and you know I I would say I've learned it at a in, an intro level, right? <laughs> uh, but is all about uh, model based systems engineering. So I know that's something that you're into that you taught me about. Uh, in fact, you recommended me a book to read, and I can put the book in the the description if people want to read it uh, about Arcadia, actually, model-based systems engineering. So why don't we talk briefly about, um, hey, you know, there's a, for people who are familiar with a Scaled Agile Framework, they do mention it in the Scaled Agile Framework, actually. They do, yeah. Um, And there's no, if you ever take a... I might have been one of the people that brought it up earlier. Oh, there you go. So, uh, so. and Harry Conaghan might have uh, been early because we've been um, model based systems engineering and set based engineering uh, yeah. and the likes have been, we've had to deal with it in automotive and, you know, aerospace and medical devices. We've all had to deal with this for. 20 30 years but we didn't have the tools or the technology uh, mm-hmm. the case tools so um, model based let's yeah. talk about um 
model-based, and then we talk about model-based systems engineering. So model-based, it's my position that with the complexity of systems today, you cannot robustly develop a complex system in a document and text-based way. The information flow is just far too complex and large, right? Mm-hmm. Hundreds of thousands of requirements, specifications, documents. You you need armies of people to robustly manage all that information. Just Mm -hmm. impossible. So it's my premise uh, that you've got to model, virtually model the systems. And model-based systems engineering is built upon the principles of classic systems engineering, which is looking at the whole ecosystem at large. So it's not just a product or a part. It's where that thing is being used, right? So you're looking at the environment, uh, you know, land a man on the moon and return them safely, right? Uh, You're looking at space rocket. You're looking at the landing uh, devices. You're looking at the moon, the earth, the the uh, the various systems. You see, you're looking at large. You're looking at the broader system. So systems engineering is around solving complex problems of the interaction of many, many parts, systems, subsystems, and doing it in a robust way. That's really – so it's partly principles and practices, and it's partly process, right? Um, okay. So – and I, and I, my position is that we're all systems engineers at heart, right? Mm. Um, so we used to do that in a very document-based, text-based way, um, specifications, requirements within the specifications, uh, build the system, and then test standards to test the specification, et cetera, et cetera. And now you can't do that, right? So model-based systems engineering is really the specifying of the requirements and the designs within its environment and identifying the limits of the parameters or the constraints of the ecosystem in which the system has to work right that's so and you'd use modeling tools to model the system right um you mentioned arcadia to do model-based systems engineering, you need three things. You need a language, so the language that the modeling tools use. Then you need a tool, the modeling tool itself. And then you need a methodology. How do I use the tool to do my systems engineering? So that's that's the sort of model-based systems engineering. And that leads into the model-based design. Today, with the complexity of the electronic devices and the software, embedded software that runs on them, more and more we have had to lean into, we don't write the code anymore for most things or for a lot of the things. We build a model. So this is really now model-based development. And from the model, we generate the code into, you know, source code that we can then compile and and put onto the real machine, right? So model-based systems engineering is all around the requirements and the specification in a model-based way. Model-based development is really about the development and the creation of the construction of the implementation. And then you could have model-based test, right, which would be the verification, the validation 
of the model up front in the systems engineering part of it and then the development in the implementation part of it. And sort of the anomaly with systems engineering is it actually it's that front part of the purest part of the specification and the design, but it's also the holistic thing as well, including the model-based development and the model-based test. So uh, for me, you have to do that. Arcadia, the one you mentioned, I think that is a very robust um, way of working that you, we could then apply agile principles and do it in an iterative and incremental way and start wherever you're at, whether you, you start top-down development and engineering or you've already got a system and you're trying to improve it, so you might come in bottom-up, et cetera. So I think there's a lot of opportunity to harmonise the model-based methodologies and the agile methodologies and really get a better way of working. And for the audience, would you be able to kind of walk through um, one example using Arcadia, the, the language that Arcadia uses um, in particular? Uh, there are four different levels uh, of, for model-based systems engineering in Arcadia, and, and we talked about logical and physical architecture. So going from yeah. top down in the levels, maybe we could just walk through like one example of that. And, and so it might make it real for people who might say, I have no idea what they're talking about on this podcast. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So. So the methodology piece of it, yeah. the Arcadia piece, right. right? First of all, you need a tool. So um, when Arcadia was developed, the, the 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 creators of it chose to develop their own tool. They could have, you know, used tools that were out there. So if you look at model-based systems engineering, the, the, if, you, if you're familiar with software, there was a UML language, mm -hmm. right, uh, a way of graphically producing diagrams that helped with describing software. Um, and then that UML language was expanded because it was not very robust for systems engineers on the bigger, broader system itself. So mm -hmm. a, a language was developed, SysML. And there's other derivatives of that that the defense use, et cetera, but let's sort of stick with that. And what Arcadia did was they said, oh, we're going to take sort of the best of the best of SysML, but we're going to sort of develop our own tool and create a thing that works for us. And the methodology part of it was kind of a, a sort of outside-in, top-down, basic approach to development. So it starts with, well, what am I developing? Mm -hmm. What's the thing that I'm developing? Let's just use the car and stay on the car thing. Okay. I'm developing a vehicle, right? right? What kind of vehicle? So the first stage is what they call operational analysis or operational needs, Right. And it's OK, I've got a vehicle. What kind of vehicle? Um, I need a vehicle to carry a lot of people. The mum wants to take the vehicle to soccer. Right. Um, so all of a sudden it starts shaping. Well, how many people? Seven or eight. And so now it becomes eventually it's going to manifest into a minivan right uh, mm -hmm. down, down the road. But you're describing what it's got to do. Right. So and you're you're putting at a high level. The operational needs got to go on the road. It's got to carry about this many people safely. So all, all the operational needs. Very quickly from the operational needs, and if you're product managers, that's how you should be writing your product is from the get-go, is what, what do we need the thing to do? Right, right. What is the problem we have to solve? Mm -hmm. and you quickly turn into the next step, which is the system analysis or the system needs. And you're already starting to say, well, it's a vehicle. 
mm-hmm. right? So now it's a system. It's a vehicle, right? Before, abstractly, it could be quite a lot of things. It could be a fast-moving uh, road, right, a rolling road, like an escalator moving moving road. And if you had enough of them, you could get from A to B and everyone just jump on the thing and get you there, right, or right. all sorts of ways. But eventually you get to the point you say, no, it's a vehicle, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then from there, you now know you've got the system and you're analysing the system, and the next stage you're jumping over into architecture. So that operational needs uh, the operational analysis and the system needs, that's really the problem space, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you're 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 at the in the phase of describing the problem. And then you jump into the solution space. And really, when you jump into the solution space, we're now into architecting, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and design. So the the first element of that is the logical architecture, the relationship of system elements. And then after that, you're going to move into physical architecture and transform logical things into physical. Where am I going to put them? I'm going to put this this one in that area. I'll put this there. I'm going to connect them via a wire or communicate over the air with wireless or whatever you've got to do, right, uh, and stuff. So, so if you sort of think about it as going down through from the top to the bottom, operational analysis, system analysis, logical architecture physical architecture once you go down to physical architecture you then there's a fifth stage in that method that is you've actually got the the end product parts breakdown which is what you implement right mm-hmm. and with that if you've modeled all that in an environment to a great degree you can then verify and validate it you know do have i got all the questions answered mm-hmm. have i got all of the inputs um connected to the outputs right uh, mm-hmm. so a lot of once you've sort of followed this approach there's a lot you can do virtually in models by bringing other models into play right i can take a representation of a model and then i could sort of put physics based model in it uh, and do you know structural analysis noise analysis sound analysis um crash analysis all sorts of dynamics so the once you once you've got modeling as the core of your way of thinking in engineering and development then now you can use that as the air traffic controller to move things along before you actually go into physical testing and the likes you actually make the parts so a lot of it you can do through virtual analysis and you know what today a lot of people call the digital digital twin and digital threads you know so for me that's the heart and soul of the future of product development is sticking with model-based approaches over sort of document and text-based approaches okay um that makes sense yeah that to me that's really exciting and that's something i'm i really want to dive more into and get more experience with so thank you for you know, obviously teaching me about that, Dave, that's, uh, that's great. Uh, and, um, well, and, and Troy, sorry to interrupt the yeah. thing I want to, I mean, I've, I've seen the way you, you, uh, handle from a product management and the flow perspective. So yeah. I'm excited that we maybe get on and work together again in and around blending more and more of that kind of product management persona aspect of it as it relates to that operational needs analysis right 
and then taking it in to more of the underlying technical systems things that get to what electronics people have to do and hardware people to do, and then the embedded software people have to do, right? Sure. So um, the, the, I, I think it's the it's coming of age now, um, and it's the for me it's the hot spot in modern product development. Okay, thank you. Uh, so let's talk. Uh, let's talk about next steps. So we're we're pretty much approaching time. So I wanted to extend this to you, and you can say whatever you want. Um, there's two things I want to cover. The first one is if somebody wanted to learn more about anything we've talked about, whether it's model-based systems engineering. Um, complex product development, or about your approach to things, because I know you you've created um, kind of a way of working around this called Laser Dome. Mm -hmm. um, where could somebody learn about all of those things? Any of those things? What do you suggest? Um, I think that uh, first of all, uh, there's the basic book learning, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you've mentioned uh, a couple of those books out there mm -hmm. that many of us also learned from um, that are well-written by masters of their trade, people that are experts in model-based systems engineering and, and the likes. And then for the likes of myself, uh, we basically are always looking to uh, apply it different ways. So currently I'm a thought leader in our uh, industry X practice. So people could reach out to me via LinkedIn and um Either there's something we could do together, and I'll and I'll be happy to you know just via LinkedIn uh, if there's knowledge I could share. I'm always excited to see people learning new approaches and things like laser dome mm -hmm. um, is something we've sort of stack a label on, mm -hmm. and it's really just a harmonize ex harmon. It's it's nothing more than sort of a container for I, I hate to call it a, a framework. I hate to call it a model right, mm -hmm. or an operating model. It's really just a container to continue harmonizing all the good things that, you know, any lean, agile systems engineering practitioner should have in their swag bag of coaching tools mm -hmm. to help improve people, do, people that make product development better. Okay. All right. So we'll put your LinkedIn link, uh, profile link in the, in the description of the podcast. And um, so that that, that kind of kills two birds with one stone because I was going to ask you how can they learn more and then how can they contact you. So sounds yeah, like the I, I think that from the business point of view, uh, uh, and I've been writing a few papers lately in and around this subject. So okay, back in December when we were slowing down a little bit on delivery, mm -hmm. um, I knocked out a few papers again, um, and through this year. Uh, There'll probably be forums. Uh, I'm a big, um, I'm a member of uh, of Incozy, so I'll probably be looking to talk more in some of the Incozy events and stuff. Incozy is the uh, International uh, Society of uh, Engineer Systems Engineers, so um, I think that's a good forum for people to learn around some of these subjects. Lots of talented people in amongst sure. those forums. Oh, beautiful. Well, thank you for your time, Dave. It's been uh, it's been wonderful as usual. I appreciate uh, listening to you, learning from you, kind of going back and forth with ideas. So, wanted I wanted to introduce you to the audience, and maybe um, you know if there's more topics, Dave, you want to talk about. If something's burning on your mind, and you're like, 
I could write a blog post about this or I could just go on the podcast. You let me know and we'll bring you on anytime. I'd love to. I'd like to sort of, it'd be nice to go back and sort of look at some of those experiences when we were working with Dr. Demian and, you know, Peter Senge and some of these, you know, uh, illuminative people in in our our space and and the likes of I'm lucky enough. To it reminds work. me of a series. Like one episode could be like, what did you learn by working with Deming? That would be a good part. Yeah, I, I could sort of talk about that when he fired me and the red bead exercise, you know. All right. Think, all right. Let's leave that as a teaser for <laughs> the next episode. Okay. All right. All right. Very good. Well, thank you, Dave. I, uh, again, appreciate it. Very yeah. Much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It's always nice talking to you. You too.